Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you from me for coming. Um, you don't need me to tell you that none of the stuff that you've just seen, extraordinary breadth of, of uh, motorsport achievement and uh, endeavor, could possibly have happened without our guest, David Richards. Um, normally, it seems to me that stars of motorsport have a, a short but uh, exciting life, and then they live for a very long time on what they used to do. The older I get, the better I was, etc. But, but uh, David is completely different from that. He had a, a career, as you know, in, uh, well, you're about to learn, at, at the very highest level of competi uh, competitive motorsport. But then he spent some decades making cars and series for people who um, came after him. Um, David, we, I guess we start at the beginning. Uh, I read an interesting piece of info about how you, you got your driver's license on, on the day that you could get it in a Lotus Cortina. <laughs> who's, who's, whose car was this? I, I've, I've long forgotten, actually. So he was obviously a very good friend at the time and a very trusting friend. But, uh, so it was a mate? Was I, it? I, well, you know what? I look back on that, and my brothers and I were talking about it the other day. Mother's car, actually, but I don't think he had a Lotus Cortina at the time. Oh, I see. There were there are certain stories about you borrowing your mother's car at a, at a much earlier age to drive around the village in a way that. Well, when we came from North Wales, we used to have these twelve-car rallies, and um, we used to go off and up through the lanes and sort of, uh, and the twelve cars held below the sort of the limits of governance from the RAC on the MSA in those in now, and. Um, but we used to tell my mother we were going to the youth club. We used to disconnect, <laughs> we used to disconnect the speedo, take my young brother, and off we go, driving this 12-car rally, come back. And he never found out until one night we brought it back, and I'd hit a bridge and took, <laughs> took the, the, the front wing, the rear wing, and two doors off it. And uh, <laughs> when we got back, we parked it against the hedge, and here, I, we'd just go to bed. It's no use telling him now. And, and, and it, my parents looked out the window, and the one looked out the kitchen window. The car was still there. That was all good news. It wasn't until my father went to mow the lawn later that he saw the other side of the car. <laughs> and then what? And it was whole hell that Then there was trouble. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my word. But, but you had an interest in motorsport from a very early age, didn't you? Was this through your dad? or? Oh, we just, you know, if you're a family of four, I've got three younger brothers, and my father was always quite interested, so it's... Uh, it was a natural thing to be doing, was anything to do with cars and motorbikes, anything we could get our hands on. But you had, you seem, it seems to me from what I read, you were kind of pulled in two directions. You were going to, you considered joining the RAF, you got your PPL very early, didn't you? But also, you finished up studying accountancy, if I'm right. Yeah, well, you can't, uh, you can't get it all right, can you? It's, uh, but it probably, <laughs> well, I bet it, I imagine it served you in later life. It didn't did, it? actually. I was, um, I actually, um, I really didn't know what to do at school. I was, I was hopeless at school. I was sort of hardly an O-level to my name. And we, um, but, uh, so when I was at school, my, uh, I was doing motorsport a little bit, and then I got a scholarship for the RAF. I had my license within three weeks of my birthday, my PPL. So I was flying, driving, and then flying. And so I was, and I was torn between going to that. And then, but I wasn't very good academically. My father sort of said, look, you know, why don't you go and do accountancy? So I did five years of articles as an accountant in those days. It was a long time. But I'd set up the office more like a sponsorship organization by that time because I was trying to raise money to do motorsport. And um, 
I had the girls on the switchboard putting sponsors through to me. And so it was your own business, was it? No, 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 it wasn't. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, might have, it might have appeared that way to my principal. <laughs> Somebody said something about t having a, a, a phone box as your... As your, uh, your oh, no, office. that was later on in life. The, the, I did my five years of articles, and I had most of my clients. I'd go to the clients, and I'd sort of, sort of um, you know, I was doing the audit, and I was the very junior person on the audit, but... Obviously, thought I could influence the situation because when I asked them for, they'd help me sponsor my rally. They were always very obliging, and, uh, <laughs> and um, but we got over that. And I did five years, and, and the last year of my articles, you were allowed to do a year in industry, and I was co-driving for a guy called Andy Dawson in those days, and he won the Kleber sponsorship uh, scholarship. So he said, to us, I went to Kleber, and I got introduced to all the people. I asked to be the finance director while I was there. I said, look, I've got a year out in industry as part of my article. Can I come and join you? He said, oh, very good. So I turned up for my first day with him, and he says, right, well, we'll show you down to where you're going to be based, and your office is going to be down there. No, you don't understand. I'm off to Africa tomorrow. We're racing there. We're rallying there next weekend. And I won't be back for six months, but I'll see you when I get back. <laughs> but no, when I, after that, I'd finished my articles, and I was still sort of trying to, uh, you know, raise money for, I don't know, I was with Tony Pond co-driving in those days and doing different things. We'd won the tour, tour of Britain, I think, in 75, and we got a, a drive then a Leyland team. So I was, it was always about so how much money you could raise to sponsors and things like that. And I had no office or anything like that. My, I hadn't, before I was married, my wife's family had a flat in London. I used to stay with them. I used to sleep on the sofa. I had to get out early in the morning before everyone else got up. And I had a mini. And um, I used to park outside a telephone box in Hyde Park, open the door there and give everyone that number until it was my office. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone used to, because no mobile phones, so everyone used to ring me on this office telephone number. They were ringing my office, and it was a telephone box that I parked. Tell me about co-driving. Did you have a go at driving? Did yeah, yeah. It, was, um, it wasn't very successful, the driving. I used to have a lot of accidents, and sort of, uh, I couldn't afford to keep that bit up. But, I, but I, I'm, I seemed to have a very strong constitution, so I could sort of keep going and reading the notes and reading the maps quite well. And, sort of, uh, and it was... It was good training for later in life. You think about managing a business or an organization. If you can manage some of these drivers while they're doing 100 miles an hour and organize everything, you could probably do anything in life. Yeah, I bet you're right. <coughs> it says here that you, by the age of 24, you had your own motorsport, what is described here as a motorsport consultancy. Is that very grandiose title for sort of, you know, my back bedroom, yes. <laughs> but but you, you started to compete, you know, see opportunities in the Middle East, yeah. didn't you? Well, what happened was um, I'd, I'd done the year with Tony Pond in Leyland, and um, I was fired by John Davenport, and we didn't get on at all. So we sort of, he got rid of me. I was just married, had no money at all, and wondering what to do next. And I'd been speaking to Rothmans, and uh, there's a potential sponsorship arrangement. And they called me up and said, we'd like you to come and see us, and we've got a proposal to make. And I said, oh, great. You're going to sponsor us, finally. And, uh, and as it turns out, this was the beginning of a relationship that went on for 30 years with Rothmans in, in their different guises. 555 was the same company, effectively, from Lucky Strike and all the Formula One relationships, all the way through. And um, so I turned up at their office, and they sat me down in the room and said, look, I said, all right, uh, about the sponsorship, well, it's not quite like that. Um, we've got a rally in Kuwait, and it's, um, we'd like you to go out and organize it for us. I would be 23 at the time, I suppose, something like that. Um, and I said, okay, um, sounds interesting. When is it? Uh, they said, it's about three weeks' time. I said, 
a little bit late in the day to be organizing a rally. He said, some of the work's already been done. Oh, that's all right. And, and why are you asking me to do it? The guy that was doing it's just been shot. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's, so, that's how I, so that's how I got my job. So you didn't pause, you just took it? I went, it, I went out and did it. And, um, and you know what? The people I met in Kuwait back in those days remembered me, and they were my investors when we bought Aston Martin in 10 years ago. Amazing. It's uh, what comes around, goes around, comes around, exactly. as they say, yeah. Um, this led up, I mean, pretty soon you were doing uh, rallying at a, at a high level, weren't you? you, know, you well, the, the Rothman situation led on because I organized all the events in the Middle East for them. They, the first one was quite successful, surprising, after so little time organizing it. And they said, would you go and organize another one down in Qatar? I said, well, I don't even know where Qatar is, but give me an air ticket and I'll go. So I turned up in Qatar, got off the aeroplane, and they said, there's a bank manager there. He's a French bank manager, bank manager of Paris Paypal. He's the guy that knows everything about rallying in Gata. Go and see him. He'll help you. So I went to see him. He said, I, I don't know anything about rallying at all. I've just, I said, I'd done a rally. I didn't say I knew anything about it. <laughs> so, so I said, well, what do, what do you think I'd do? And he said, well, you should go and see the head of the police. So I sort of turned up at the head of the police, um, who didn't speak a word of English. And they had this majlis a sort of room about this size with seating all around the outside and the head of the police would be sitting here and you'd start in that corner and you'd eventually get to the front of the queue about three days later having drunk a lot of tea and waited for a long time and I waited I waited I got around to the front of the queue and I tried then to explain to him what I wanted to do was organize a car rally in the very first event they'd ever had and um, he got someone to translate and the next day he took me out in his Mercedes and showed me the whole country fantastic the, the, the thing that strikes me is that already you've, you've done more than plenty of people have, <coughs> have achieved in 20 years by that t at, at this stage. Were you, did you feel driven or did you just take advantage of all opportunities? I mean, what, I just, what happened? I, I just like new things. I like excitement and doing things, and doing things well, obviously, but um, I love the challenge. And uh, these were all challenges. I look back now and I think, you know, I often look at my kids who are sort of a lot older than I was then and... Uh, think, you know, how closeted we are today and, you know, that we don't yeah. push ourselves enough and put ourselves in situations where, you know, I was a little uncomfortable. It wasn't easy at times, but uh, certainly I look back as great days. As I understand it, you came back and you, you got into serious rallying. You linked up with Ari Vartanen. Well, that, that was the, the, the whole purpose of the relationship with Rothmans. It was still to raise the money to do the World Championship. And I'd met Ari a few years before that, and he'd come to stay with us up in North Wales when uh, he didn't speak a word of English. And so we, we got on well, and we always had a good relationship and rapport. The sign uh, language. Yeah, virtually. And I said to um, Rothmans in 79 or 70, yeah, 78, I said, look, there's this young Finn. I think he's going to be world champion. You ought to put some money behind him. And, you know, I'll co-drive for him. And I put a presentation together. And, and Rossmans came up and put the money on the table. In 79, it was one million pounds, which is a lot of money in 79. So that made, that helped the rest of the Ford it, operation. It kept, it kept Ford alive in those days, I think. There was, our teammates were Hanno Mickler and Bjorn Valdegard, and we went in as the third car in the team. We crashed all the cars, whereas they did all the results. But we sort of, you know, it was a great grounding in the Ford factory team that year. And, uh, and then Ford pulled out then in 80, I think it was, there was the next year in Boreham when it closed down. And um, we still had sponsorship 
from Rothmans, and they were very keen to sort of keep pursuing. And, and we'd had an awful lot of accidents, and uh, it was sort of looking a bit tenuous whether Ford would keep faith with Ari. But um, in 81, we persuaded David Sutton then to, uh, to run a private team uh, with Ford sort of backing in the background. And um, we, everything slotted into place in 81, and we won the championship. Fantastic. There's a, I think I read somewhere that you, you remember, um, at, you know, as you won the, what is now Wales Rally GB, you, you, you drove past the spot where you used yeah. to stand as a kid watching uh, well, rally cars. Back when I was the eldest of four boys, and my brothers and I used to cycle our bicycles up to the forest, the Clocano Forest, about sort of five miles from our house, and we used to go and watch, and we watched for every car. In those days, there'd be 240 cars in the Rally GB, the last cars were the army cars, the minis and the Land Rovers. We'd watch those go through and wave at them all. Yeah. And the very corner that we watched on, it was the nearest corner to our house. Was sort of, it was a long straight and there was a 90 degree corner and we sort of waited on that corner. It's the last corner of the, the whole forest. And that turned out to be the very last corner of the 81 RAC rally that we won the World Championship you won, on. So yeah. it all comes around in circles, as you oh, said. Amazing, yeah. We've got some video of, of a Rothman's, of Rothman's sponsored cars in you went back to the Middle East. You obviously yep. organised. Do, how does that slot into the to the, to the sequence of events? Um, I think there were, yeah, we're talking well, that about Porsches. That here. came next. Actually, yeah. that came next. So presumably, I mean, around about now, you decided to give up, didn't you? You get uh, eighty-one. We had that, two that, young children. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, is that, is that the reason? I was well, interested. It's, yeah, it's yeah. quite early to give up, given that you're a world champion. Yeah, but you know, we had two young children. We spent our life travelling around the world, and I just really wanted my own team. And I sort of said, no, you know, now's the time to stop. And, you know, Harry was very badly injured a year later in a, an accident in Argentina where he was lucky to survive. So I think I got out at the right time, actually. So you don't miss it? You, you didn't miss it? Not at the in the slightest, no. I've never ever got... Well, you did. Harry and I did a, a charity thing up in Scotland for Colin McRae uh, Foundation thing a few years back. And yeah. that's the only other time. Yeah. Um, but, no, so we decided to... So you just made a quick transition into organisation. Yeah, trying to, uh, then I, I, Rothmans wanted me to carry on advising them. So I went to, you know, they've still been very close sponsors and I went to them and I said, look, I'd like to sort of stop from co-driving. I'd like to have my own team. I said, okay, well, let's, um, let's see about that. We might, might help you in the future. But in the meantime, why don't you come and advise us on some of our other operations? And um, time they just sponsored a Formula One team and it was the March Formula One team with the McDonald brothers, I don't know if you remember them, and I was sent in to try and sort it out. Well, it was a, it was a basket case right from the beginning and I sort of knew this was going to be a tough one. And, um, but by the, the middle of the season, we went to Monaco and neither car qualified and so it was pretty well the, uh, the excuse I needed and we flipped the sponsorship into the Porsche uh, endurance team for Le Mans. And that was the start of the Rothmans Porsche program with uh, Jackie X, Derek Bell, and all that gang. And so I was responsible for putting that together. Oh, really? Yeah. But also, you, this, these RSRs, the, the, the rally cars. Well, that happened as a result of the relationship with Porsche, because I was still banging on the door saying, what about my team? You know, we said we were gonna, I was going to have a team. And they said, OK, well, we've got this great relationship with Porsche. They're bringing on the 959, which was supposed to be a great Group B car. Why don't you um, talk to them? And so I talked to Porsche, and they said, well, the 959 is a little way away. Let's start with the 911. We'll build some special 911s. So built 20 911 SCRSs, of which Rothmans bought six. And that was the foundation of the, the team. 
Henry Choi even joined me the first year uh, to do the European Championship, and I persuaded him to come across. And, uh, and Saeed Al Hajri from the Middle East, he, uh, he was a talent I'd watched out there. That was a big market for Rothman. So we went out, we won the Middle East Championship, and we finished running up in the European Championship with that car. Fantastic. And that was the start of the program and the start of the. Uh, of course, the 959 never really worked because it was just too big. They did Dakar with it, but, um, or Heavy the evolution of it. Didn't work for what we needed it for, and we moved on to BMW shortly afterwards. Where did the, when did the name of ProDrive come up, About and, and why? Time. Is there a particular... No, it was just one of those lucky fluke things. I was talking to someone probably in a bar some one night, and we came up with the idea, and, um, and we just changed, because uh, it was under my name to start with the company, and I just wanted it to be a sort of uh, a generic name, and uh, we came up with ProDrive. And you started it near Silverstone with Eddie yeah. Jordan as a neighbour? He was. He was my next-door neighbour. He uh, kept coming around to borrow the sugar and tea <laughs> and <laughs> everything else, as I remember it. And um, uh, we had a little lock-up in Silverstone. It was 1,500 square feet or something there, and, uh, and there were about 14 of us when we first started. It was, uh, it was quite a cosy little operation. And, and that was the beginning of the BMW that was, six um, years, wasn't it? That was, um, actually, that was about the handover from Porsche to BMW. We were, when we got a bit bigger with the BMWs and we moved to, um, to Banbury just over 30 years ago. And the site, first site, which was just the, the one that everyone notices by the motorway there. You've just moved out of it. And we just moved To one that's even more noticeable. It is actually about a mile down the road. There's a story, isn't there, about you wanting to face the motorway both with the old place and the new one? Yeah, well, the, although, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. When I went down there one evening, we were building the, the old site. I looked at this building and I looked at the, what the planners and the, the building people, and they had these brown buildings that mellowed in with the, the landscape and they faced inwards into a sort of little industrial area. But I knew the motorway was going to come steaming past our front door within a year or two. So I went to see the, um, the builders and I said, look, I want our building turned around to 180 degrees. I want you to have white cladding on it. And he said, well, I, you know, no one's ever asked us for that before. I said, okay, well, we're going to do it. And it sort of, that became a sort of bit of a landmark. Then. It did become a landmark, didn't yeah, it? Yeah. You, you sort of, well, it, it's, I think it's the same today. You know where you yeah. are on the M40. Yeah, you do. Because you see the letters. <coughs> yeah, we've done the same with the new building. Although the, the planners tried to stop us with that one because they, they, we were in Northampton instead of Sherwell when that one is. But we've managed to turn them around and persuade them that now that is the only white building allowed on that industrial estate. Everything else has got to be silver or grey. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and your, so the, the, what was the major, when you moved in there, what was, what was going on? What was the major? It was BMW. We were, we were doing rallies in Europe with BMW. We'd, um, the M3 was a great car. And we um, were mostly doing tarmac events across Europe. And then that was the first start of our, our motor racing, actually. The very first... Uh, foray into motor racing was with Frank Sittner in the Touring Car Championship and, and Frank has become a very good friend of mine who went to his daughter's wedding only a couple of months ago and he's, um, I remember he's a very difficult character to work with was Frank and um, there's some classic video footage of Frank in that Touring Car Championship stomping up and down the pit lane complaining about everything and he came to me and said you know one of the chaps works for him uh, suggested we might be able to build a race car and uh, we had a pile of bits in the corner, and everyone looked at each other and said, do you think we can make that into a race car? Yeah, well, let's have a go. And um, that was the start of our relationship with BMW and, uh, and the Touring Car Championship in the UK. And you won a few, didn't you? I, d 
Three, was it? was it? I think we've done more than that. I think we won with BMW, we won a few times, and then we've won with uh, Alfa Romeo, and then we won with Ford as well. Yeah, th no, no, I think it was, uh, uh, what I meant was three BMW yeah, championships. Yeah, we did three titles with them. They must have been pleased with that. They were, it was good times. The, that M3 was a great car, great relationship with BMW, and it was the real heyday of the British Touring Car Championship. That's, um, but the interesting time, I ended up, um, I ended up buying part of the British Touring Car Championship with Alan Gow, with Dandy Rouse, and one other partner, I can't remember the name, four of us bought, bought the, the Touring Car Championship because the rules then, what was going on? We had the M3, it was all in class structures, and we had the M3, but the Fords, Ford Sierras with the turbos, were just annihilating us. They, they, but, and they, was lapping, they would lap us, and there were three classes, if I remember. There was them, there was the two-litre class, and there was a, a smaller class. It was all John Clellan, a 1600 cc, would win the, the championship, and yet we were, the big Sierras were winning all the races, and it just didn't work out. So we put forward an idea to, to bring touring car racing into one category. And David Lapp was my technical director, wrote the rules and said, let's make it a two-litre championship and balance it for front-wheel drive and rear-wheel drive. And that was the start of the, the heyday of the touring car championship. And, um, and it was really big, wasn't it? it I was mean, very it's big not massive. bad now, but it was massive <coughs> then, wasn't it? Was it was massive then. It was really... And how did your, did, did you own it for a while and get out of it again? Yeah, I, I, we, I had a share in that for about five years and then I sold it all to Alan Gow at the end of the day and moved on to something else. Yeah, well, there's something else, I guess, was, was pretty soon, was your relationship with Subaru, wasn't it? Yeah, that was 89, the, um, the first meeting I ever had with Subaru. The, um, the owner, the, uh, they just were going to build a new car. They were building pickup trucks, basically, for farmers in those days. And they had a new car coming on the scene, and they wanted to change the image of the company, and uh, they needed a younger profile. And Mr. Kuze, a wonderful Japanese man, came to see me, and he said... Uh, I've watched what you're doing with other things. Would you like to run the world championship for us and sort of build a car for us? Well, of course we'd like to do that. That was a, because the whole thing was moving to four-wheel drive, so we had to have a four-wheel drive car. And uh, this was our opportunity. And I had a great engineer with David Lapworth, a great team of people. And we built the first cars. There was the legacy to start with. We got Marco Allen to come and drive for us. And, um, and that was the start of a relationship. It went on for 18 years. What were they like to deal with, Subaru? Were they, were they kind of <coughs> naive and yeah, hands-off? They were, to start with. Um, large car companies and uh, large sponsors behave very similarly in my, my experience. They start off because nobody's quite sure if the program's going to be successful, so everyone stands well back from it, and, and they watch and just sort of, uh, and see where it's all going to work out because they don't want to get tainted if it all goes wrong. So all the corporates stay well away from you and leave you to get on. So the first year or so, you have never see a soul they stay well out of it. Second year, as they start to realize things are getting quite interesting, you start to see them coming to events and being very sort of pally. And, uh, and by the third and fourth year, they're interfering in everything. And it's <laughs> it becomes quite challenging at that point. But presumably, that's, that's the art of running a team, is it? Making oh, sure of, that you... part of the program. And, you know, I sort of I share a lot of sympathy with the likes of Ron Dennis because he has similar problems. And, uh, you know, we, we often chat about these things. But... But, it's, um, but the Subaru relationship was different because there was a naivety there. They'd never been there before. They'd never done it before. And they just, Mr. Kuze was this lovely chap uh, who said, um, look, I'll worry about my side of it. You worry about your side of it. And, and we'll just make sure you tell me what's going on. And, um, we, and most of the time I did. I forgot to tell him about signing Colin McRae, actually. He reminded me of that sometime later. You know, you signed up that Scotsman without telling me. <laughs> 
Not a bad move, though, was it? Not a bad move, no. <laughs> Were they, did they expect to do as well as they did do? Did, was it a huge surprise to them? It was. It's quite interesting because uh, they were a little company. And, and the interesting thing is motorsport, I found, can do so many different things. People look at it and they say, well, it just, you know, it's about going around in circles and you know, sort of making cars go fast. But in the particular situation with Subaru, it gave them extraordinary self-esteem. This was a little company that had gone through real trauma, had never really, you know, really never punched above its weight at all and was producing great cars, great technically, and they come from an aeroplane background. And when we came to sort of start to do well in the World Championship, I remember going to speak to the board and spoke to Mr. Cuse before the meeting. I said, right, next year's the year we win the World Championships. He said, you can't say that. I said, what do you mean you can't say that? He said, we are going to win next year. I said, please don't say that to the board because they will never believe it. It's just above our station. We're, you're going against Toyota, you're against Ford, you're against uh, Lancia. It can't happen. I said, well, I'm sorry, but that's, we've got to nail our flag to the mast. That's what we're going to do. And you know what? From that little company, the self-esteem that grew in that place, the, the way they believed in themselves after that, and they said, now we can do anything. The recruitment that we managed to achieve for them, we did, we did presentations to Tokyo <coughs> University. Engineers who would never go there before suddenly started to put their name down for going to... to so you, you brought some Japanese in to work with you, did you? Uh, we had. We had a transfer all the time. We made sure we had people working inside the company on a regular basis. And uh, we also did a lot in Japan for them as well. Tell us about Colin, because, you, because you know, you, <coughs> Colin became a star, then Richard Burns became yeah. a star, then Solberg became a star. You won umpteen championships. They all won a championship yep. for us. <coughs> And you won some manufacturers. Tell, just talk us through the whole lot. Tell us about Colin first. How Colin. did you know him? How oh, I knew Colin for when he was about 16 years old. He used to come. His father drove for us. His father was in our team and um, in, drove a 6R Metro 6R4. And uh, so I'd known Colin since he was very young and watched him develop and watched him on the RAC rally. I can't remember which year it was when he, he did miracles in a Ford Sierra. And um, everyone assumed he'd go to Ford the following year. And Ford didn't come up with the budget or anything to put him into the team. So Jimmy and I were at the Autosports show and he came to see me and said, Colin hasn't got a drive, what do you think? And I said, well, what's he going to do? And he said, I don't know, any chance we can do anything together? And I said, I've no idea. We'll, um, we just started the Subaru program. I said, let's try and do the British Championship. Because I knew in the World Championship we were going to have a tough time that year, beginning of the whole program. And I knew we needed to keep morale high in the team and we needed some victories to sort of just keep everyone on. Uh, believing in us, if you like. And so Colin came and we found the money from Rothmans again. I went to Rothmans and said, look, I've got no budget with this, but this is a great young guy. What about coming with us? And they did. They supported us. And, um, <coughs> and you'll find there are constants throughout so many of the things I did. And it, it all goes back to doing the things right at the beginning. What was, was Jimmy, is Jimmy, was he a, a, at the time ambitious for his sons? I guess he was. Yeah, very, very. Both Colin and Alistair. He was a big supporter of both of them. And... Uh, and you know, being brought up in that family was, you know, what else would you do but become a rally driver? Yeah, and yeah. Um, but uh, uh, Colin was a rare talent and uh, difficult to manage at times. Who's had uh, we had our, our moments of contretemps, yeah. and, uh, times where he thought he was going to be fired, and I didn't speak to him for a week, and then we sort of reconciled ourselves. And, there uh, were some team orders issues, weren't there? Oh, yeah, that's that's one big affair. We had um, well, there were two two major events I remember for Colin. There was 
uh, the first time we went to Finland, the Thousand Lakes, I said to him, I, came, I got him to come to my office before he went, I said, look, Colin, uh, this event, <coughs> it's your first time there, you'll go there many times in your career, it's the, it's the home of all the Finns, it's the fastest event in the world, just go there and learn it this year, just get the lines, learn what pace it is, <coughs> really bring back that experience. You get the experience, I want to see you at the finish, so just don't muck about, just do it sensibly. So I turn up at the rally at Scrutineering, um, arrived the day beforehand, and I ask where Colin's car is, and they, they say, it's just down the body shop. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what do you mean it's in the body shop? He took it out testing yesterday, and he rolled it. <coughs> okay. He proceeded to roll it on three separate occasions during the event. I remember this. And uh, became a national hero in Finland. That's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and what's more, on the last occasion, I found myself with a sledgehammer knocking out the roof for him as well. So it's, Amazing. It's, uh, but he was just one of those people who never gave anything less than 100%. He was just, you know, always 100% everywhere he went. And, um, and um, uh, when we got to the year in which he won the championship, um, we're in, uh, it's been nip and tuck all year with him and Carlos Saints. Quite a tricky relationship to manage in the team. And we got to the Spanish rally, and of course, you know, Carlos Saints, Spain, expecting to win. And by the night before the final day, Carlos had a slender lead, 10, 20 seconds, I don't remember what it was. And I sat down with Colin and his father, Jimmy, I said, right, guys, um, I need to win the manufacturer's title here. And I'm very sorry, but it's team orders to the finish now. You're just going to take it sensibly tomorrow morning. Carlos has won this event, and we'll fight it out in the last round of the championship in Britain next, next month. Colin wasn't best pleased, but um, I assumed that they'd accepted the orders and that that was what it was going to happen until it became blatantly clear. Carlos wound him up in the morning and so basically at breakfast so said, I'd have beaten you anyway, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was red rag to a bull as far as Colin was concerned. And of course, defied all team orders and I'm flying around in a helicopter trying to catch him all day, trying to get to speak to him. <laughs> Eventually... I find him in the high street of Lorette de Mar. This is the final place of the rally, and there's, there's one time control to go before they check into the finish ramp. I said, well, uh, you know, the expletives were quite strong, and I said, you know, this is just not going to happen. He said, uh, he said, no, I've won the rally. I've won the rally. No, you haven't. You just didn't uh, disobey team. Carlos is sitting quietly in the background. I told you so. You know, he's a typical Spanish. And um, so eventually, after a lot of arguing in the high street, and it, well recorded by many journalists were there. Um, Colin eventually relented and, uh, uh, and checked in a minute late to hand the victory to, to Carlos. But then the next event went on just to annihilate Carlos on the Rally GB and, and win the world title. Is that, I've, I, I had a bit of contact myself with Colin and it always seemed to me that if he really decided that he was going to win something, mm. nobody, could, nobody could stick uh, with him. He was just... It was just unbelievable. He went on to a different level from anybody else. People would say, I just don't know how that could be possible. He was just, he was a very natural driver. And um, we got into all sorts of hassle with him because uh, he, he, he didn't like authority. He was, um, we, there was one occasion in, I didn't go to the event in Argentina the following year. And um, we, oh yeah, I know. We, he was never very eloquent and he was never very good at interviews with uh, journalists. So we said, right, we won't let him do interviews with journalists. We'll just issue photographs. We'll just do a load of wild photographs and we'll do snippets of him doing stupid things like jumping off cliffs, like riding motorbikes, like 
doing all the wildest things we could think of. And we just issued press releases and photographs. Colin's over here doing this. He's, he's hang gliding here. He's cliff jumping here. He's doing, and no interviews. And um, eventually, uh, the FIA began to believe he was a lunatic. <laughs> and, and, and in Argentina, he did make a small mistake in a service area and knocked over a spectator or something. Then the stewards called him up. He didn't go and see him. So I get a call from Max Mosley. He said, right, it's enough's enough. You're out of control with your driver. He's completely out of control. He's supposed to be a world champion representing the sport. I want him in front of the World Council. We're going to sort of reprimand him and have a, a long talk to him. And we, had, we were called up in front of the World Council. And it was only for Balestra. Balestra was sitting on the opposite side of the table. Anyone remember Balestra? Didn't speak much English, but he, he was quite a forceful character. And I'm watching the body language around this table of everybody, thinking this is a, this is a hanging squad. They're going to sort of exclude Colin for the rest of the championship or something. And there's myself, a lawyer, and Colin. And um, my French is poor, but I can understand a little bit of it. And I'm watching Balestra is mumbling away about all this and sort of... All the rest of them are saying, this is enough, it's enough, and this is all. And Balestra eventually stood up and, and spoke in French and spoke, what do you expect of young drivers? This is what we expect them to do. He's a hero in my mind. We shouldn't be penalising, we should be congratulating him. And he clapped, and that was the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Was, was Colin there for this? Colin was there. Was, was he required to say anything to these No, people? we didn't let him say anything. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he must have been... Uh, he, he must have been... He was great fun. He yeah. was great. And the, the sad irony of it all, like, like so many things in life, it went full circle and he moved on to Ford. You know, disappointing for, for us, but uh, nonetheless it happened. But then we became very good friends afterwards and um, uh, what very, never really got published very much, but um, he uh, came to see me um, in July and we had a long chat about what he wanted to do in the next year. And he, we, he said, I've got one more year of of really being, I think I could have one more crack at the World Championship. I, uh, that was about 2006, 2000, yeah, 2007, 2007. One more crack at it. And um, he, uh, we arranged for him to come down. We agreed to everything. I flew down to have dinner with him. We went down to Goodwood to do a promotion thing for Charles March. And he picked me up with a helicopter. We went to Goodwood. We had dinner. And on the way back, we chatted about all the terms. We got everything agreed. David Latworth called him the following Saturday morning to arrange the test the following week, to start testing for the following year, and he was killed Saturday afternoon. Mm. So he might have made a comeback with you? He would have made a comeback. It was all agreed. Yeah. Whether it would have been successful, who knows. But that's Do you think he still had it at that stage? We were going to find out, and we would have given it our all, as Colin always would have. Yes, I'm sure. But in the meantime, you, you also had lots of contact with Richard Burns, who yep. must have been a nice change, was he? Uh, Richard was a uh, complete contrast. Richard was um, in, I've always reckoned in motorsport you need, you need three principal skills. You need to have this innate talent to sort of drive and you can't get away with not having it. You can have it in slightly lesser degree than others, but um, you, need to, um, you need to be a, a team builder as well. You need to get the team to rally around you because you know, Schumacher was the best example of that where he got everybody working for him and uh, finally, you need to put effort and hard work into it. And there are very few drivers I've ever met who have all those three skill sets combined. And uh, Richard was um, great with the team, worked harder than anybody else, but didn't quite have the talent of Colin. 
And he would probably be the first to admit it, but he made up for it in so many other ways. And, um, and when he ended up in the team as effectively the young pretender, we had Kankanen in the team who wasn't delivering. He was just sort of waning in the wane of his sort of career. I said, it's down to you, Richard. You're going to have to take up the reins and you're going to have to win. <coughs> and, um, and he did just that. And he was a, he was a very, very likable person when he got to, uh, into the winning phase. He was a very good guy. Yeah. And then, of course, you, you also won a championship with Solberg, didn't yep. you? That, that was sort of towards the end of your yeah, connection with... Yeah, the Subaru's period, yeah. What was he like? So, he's an entertainer. He's just a, a big character, as you've seen now in the World Rallycross Championship, which he's won twice now. Um, he's um, not very technical, and, um, but just, uh, you know, uh, as I say, a, a great entertainer. And on the day, can be as quick as anybody. So it's just, sometimes you just get these days where you just get everything to come together. You line up all the stars and it works. So he was... Not quite in on McRae level, but no, he would be on the, his day. He, he would be one with exceptional <coughs> talent. Uh, he didn't have the the technical skills, in my view, then. Right. Okay. So <coughs> Subaru withdrew when the financial crisis. Hit yeah, us. 2008, when Toyota pulled out of <coughs> Formula One, they decided that was a great opportunity for them to pull out of rallying at the same time. I must tell you one other story of some about Subaru. I bet everyone in this room has wondered why blue Subarus have gold wheels. Because they, they shouldn't have had gold wheels. Okay. The, um, the car was designed by Peter Stevens. Uh, that was the World Rally car we built in um, 99, I, I suppose it was, something like that. And it was a wonderful mica blue, and it had grey graphite wheels, and the car looked sensational. Um, when we turned up at Monte Carlo Rally Speedline, had painted all the wheels the wrong colour. And they painted them all gold. And we obviously, and Peter Stevens threw a wobbly when he saw them. This is just not how the car was designed. And it just didn't look right. It was just, um, it really wasn't a very good fashion statement. But it was, um, we ran the whole rally like that. And after the rally, we won. Piero Liati won the rally. And we, I wrote to the president apologising for this sort of, the car looking as it did because it had the gold wheels and everything. And uh, don't worry, because they're all being repainted by Sweden. They'll all be the right colour. He wrote back immediately, all our advertising has now been done with gold wheels. Never change them. <laughs> <laughs> and and so we were never allowed to change the wheels ever and again. And it, the gold wheels are still Gold wheels, still the, gold the wheels thing, are still there. They? You look at any car flashing past, you hear that burbling noise, the Subaru comes past, gold wheels. I tell you. I bet you, <laughs> I bet you there are some people here with a Subaru with gold wheels. Um, ju just one other Subaru sidelight. You, you built this car called the P2, didn't you? Yeah. I remember it well. Um, what was that about? What did, why did you do it? <coughs> we built a car thinking um, it was actually to show Subaru that they could build a sports car. And to, uh, we built it on the base of one of their small cars and put all the big engine and everything into it and the running gear. A lot of technical wizardry. And um, it, was, uh, it would have been an interesting concept. And uh, it was just a little bit too far out for them to think about. But it was quite a good way of showing what ProDrive could do. It was. A, part of the reason for us was just as a demonstrator for all the team to show what we could do and the different talents and bring the team together in one, in one product. You still got it? I think you have. Yeah, we've got, yeah. got it still. Terrific. Yeah, if it still drives, well, get it out and try it. <laughs> so back <coughs> on the circuits, they were, meanwhile, as they say, yeah. you're, you, you, you were taking Ferraris to Le Mans or, or in fact, into sports car racing, I didn't think you? before then we, we were in... Formula One then for a while. Oh, okay, let's do that. <coughs>
We had, um, that was an interesting period because um, uh, Rossman's again said to me in 97, 98, uh, we want to go into Formula One and we'd like to, you to brew a proposal for us to how to go to Formula One. And so I looked and at the time, only four teams had ever won in Formula One. Would you believe that? Or four of the current teams there, four of them uh, were the only winners. So I said, well, none of the top three teams are going to be for sale. The only one that might be for sale is Benetton. So I went down to Benetton. Um, Bernie did the introductions to me to Benetton family. I went down and met them, negotiated with them a little bit about how we might do something, and came back with a proposal to Rothman. So that here's the, how we could do this. And they turned around and said, no, they weren't going to... They weren't going to get into bed with a woolly jumper company, and that was the end of it. And uh, so um, it, they wanted to own the team outright, and it wasn't on offer. So it would have been the Rothmans F1 team? It would have been Rothmans F1. Interesting. And uh, we would have been in India 2000 or 99 or 2000. 99, I think. And um, the, uh, they wanted to have a greenfield site, start again, clean sheet of paper. They wanted to do it differently. And I said, I didn't think this was a very good idea. I think this could cost them a lot of money and might not work. Uh, but nevertheless, they went that way. Anyway, I get a call from Bernie about six months later, and uh, he said, um, remember the Benettons? You got on quite well with them. Would you like to go down and see them again? They've got a bit of a problem on their hands, and uh, they might, you know, I think they'd like you to come and help them out. So I went down to see them, and they said, yeah, um, Flavio's had his hand in the till once too often now. I think we're going to sort of, I think we've really got to sort of sort this out, and uh, we'd like you to sort of take over and run the team for us, and we'd like you to train our young son Rocco to take over in the long term. I said, okay, fine. That sounds an interesting proposition. So we agreed terms over a weekend in, in Venice. And uh, I said, as I left on the Sunday evening, I said, look, um, what's, um, uh, what about Flavio? And they said, when you get to the office tomorrow morning, you can fire him. <laughs> so, and I, I went into the office the next morning at 9 o'clock into the Benetton factory at Enston. And Flavio was behind his desk. And it was one of the, like one of those gangster movies where the guy looks up from the desk and said, so they sent you, did they? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and what were the mechanics of that? Did he literally walk out that yeah, day? Yeah, I, I walked to the front door with him, yeah. And he, as he walked out of his office, he said, by the way, all these are mine, all these pictures, all the furniture's mine. So we <laughs> sent it down in a van later in the week. But we've always got on, Flav and I have always got on, and we sort of never held a grudge about it at all. It was sort of, he said, by the way, You'll be the next one, so don't worry. <laughs> it's a bit like being a football manager, I think. And I, I was supposed to train Rocco, who was the young family member, and uh, I could never get him out of bed. I could never find him. He was always at nightclubs. We'd say, Rocco, you've got to come to the office sometimes, and where are you now? And he'd be sort of, he'd be some Ibiza or something like that. He was supposed to be in Enston. <laughs> you can see why he did what he did. Though, can't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. So what, how did that play out? Uh, by the end of the following year, I'd put a proposal... They, they were running out of cash because they, the Benetons didn't want to put the money up. Um, the, it was clearly moving into a different era at the time with um, Ford wanted to come in. And I went to see Jack Nasser in uh, Dearborn and uh, had a proposal from Jack to buy half the team again. Same story. I said to the Benetons, here's the deal. Jack, Ford will buy half the team. You'll get Ford engines. It'll be a Ford Benetton arrangement as you were with the Schumacher days. They said, no, we want to remain independent. We like our friends from Renault. And they ended up selling the team to Renault a year later. So it's... Um, that's how it without went. you? Without me. Yeah. I went back to, uh, back to, uh, to ProDrive. Um, but meanwhile, the, the Rossman's plan hadn't quite worked according to... Can I, can I just interrupt 
did you, have you ever smoked? No, I smoked cigars a little so bit. So you wouldn't you, you wouldn't have uh, you wouldn't <coughs> been much of an ambassador then. I wasn't actually, but um, and it's it, looking back at those days now, when you look at the cigarette sponsorship, it's it's quite hard to believe what it was like in those days. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, everyone was puffing away on cigarettes. It's yeah. Sorry, I interrupted. No, uh, then I went back, and of course, a year later, we get a call from the chairman of uh, now BAT that owned Rothmans and Lucky Strike and all the different cigarette brands. Said, look, we've got a bit of a problem on our hands here. Um, this Greenfield site and this brand new team, with all the money we're spending, we haven't scored a single point. And um, <laughs> we've got the best driver in the world. We've got this Jacques Villeneuve fellow, and uh, it's not looking very good. Could you come and advise us what to do? So they gave us, um, uh, uh, we did a five-year plan, and we said, look, it will not happen overnight, this. We need five years to do it. And uh, so they gave us a five-year contract to do it, and we went in, and by the third, and the, 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 the message I got was, and the, the whole objective was, we want you, first of all, to control the budget, because we honestly don't know how much we're spending at all, and it's going, it, we just don't know what the budget is at the moment. Um, we, uh, secondly, we'd like, to, we'd like to get a few results, because, you know, we've sort of not done anything so far. And thirdly, we want you to sell the team because cigarette companies are out of sponsorship within the next five years, so you've got to get out of it. So I was given a five-year contract, and the third year we'd, um, we were second to Ferrari, having come from last, and uh, we sold it to Honda. Fantastic. Mm. And, and then you, you stepped out again, yeah. obviously, because Honda... No, well, Honda, Honda fired me again. So, <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, no, they, it was, as far as they were concerned, well, I'd fallen out with them a little bit because um, the previous year... The end of the previous year, the engineers came to me and said, look, the engine in this car, we can't get the engine to work in the, in the chassis. You've got to go and sort it out with the, with the Japanese. So I went over to Japan. I said, look, a uh, bit of a problem here. My engineers say the engine doesn't work with the, the chassis. We're not going to win with this. Um, they said, but we've got the best engine in Formula One. I said, um, well, this, how, do you, how do you measure that? He said, we've got 1,000 horsepower. And our president told us, be the first engine with 1,000 horsepower. Yeah, but it's, it's enormous, the engine. It's heavy, and it drinks fuel, and we can't get it into the chassis. So we've got to work together to make this work. And they said, well, that's not our problem. That's your problem. <laughs> You're doing the chassis. We've done the engine. There's a 1,000 horsepower. So I went back to the guys with the bad news. I said, look, I haven't really made a lot of progress with these guys. Um, I'm not quite sure what we can do next here. And as luck would have it, Michelin were coming back into Formula One, and uh, Michelin went with Ferrari on an exclusive agreement. And I knew the Michelin people from our rally days, Pierre de Pasquier and all the guys there. But I went to see him in France and said, Pierre, why don't you put us in the... You need more testing time. We'll be a great team. You know me well. Why don't we just do our little team as well? We're at the back of the grid. We'll cause you no problems. And, uh, and so, how about it? And he said, oh, all right then. So he, we persuaded him to do that. And I remember going to tell the... Uh, in Japan, I announced it at the last race of the year in Japan. And... Uh, of course, the relationship with Honda and, and Bridgestone, who were with was like that, they went apoplectic about it and tried to, tried to fire me on the spot and caused all sorts of constant problems with BAT and the sponsors. And um, at the end of the following year, when we were second to Ferrari, they, they told me they thought we would have won if we stayed on Bridgestone tyres. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you, you, you've, you had a further... A sort of skirmish with F1, didn't you? Yep. You, you were we, gonna, there was going to be a prodrome. Yeah, we team. were putting a team in. We we entered. We got the we got the um, we got the license and everything. Got everything agreed, and 
everything was, um, it was an interesting time because what had happened, they changed the rules. Max Mosley changed the rules. He decided that it was too much of a closed shop. And <coughs> the, the uh, ownership of IP and the cars, in those days, you had to own the intellectual property and the whole car, effectively. And there were certain relaxations. Obviously, engines were common in certain cars. There were certain other elements. But basically, you had to design and own the whole car. Well, the, the change of rules for the next Concord Agreement in 2008 released, lifted that. And it was basically, and nobody really paid a lot of attention to it. They didn't realize the consequences of it. So I went to McLaren and said, what about um, doing a car for us as well? Why don't we do this together? And they said, well, why would we do that? I said, because testing is going to be severely restricted. And by running a second team with us, we'll double the testing mileage. You can put junior drivers with us. Maybe you've got some sponsors who might like to come as well. And, um, and we'll run the second team. <coughs> so we agreed that. I'd been to see Bernie previously, and I said, oh, I'm going to get McLaren's for, for next year. And, uh, yeah, next year. He said, pretty good. Old McLaren's will be pretty good. That'll be really good news. They have a, you know, it's cheap for you to do it. It'll be good for everybody. I said, no, 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 not old McLaren's. I'm going to have the same ones as the other guys. Never. And anyway, it quietly dawned on everyone what was going to happen. And, they, they, um, and then they sort of thought, well, they'll never get the money to run it. And then they quietly realized that was probably going to happen as well. And then Williams served um, an injunction on uh, the FIA, Bernie Eccleston and myself, and said, you know, if this happens, it's a breach of the Concord Agreement mm. because they'd signed a new version of the Concord Agreement. They hadn't actually signed an agreement, but they'd signed an agreement to agree on basically the same terms that they'd interpreted from before. And the, and everyone just lost faith in the whole idea, and it all fell apart. But you, my memory is that you you had quite a good chance of doing it because you had Middle Eastern connections and the yeah. money lined so up. Everything was done. It was just that McLaren said you had, we had to start building the cars in October, or we had to start the whole program in October, and we just lost time, and everyone got nervous about it. How do you... F when something like that happens, you've got it all lined up, Tetris, mm -hmm. do you go home and... Kick the cat, or do you, do you take it out on my wife? It? Probably. <laughs> no, she's still with you. We, uh, we know that. <laughs> yes, she's very long suffering. No, but Steve. Do, do you lose it? You know, you no, I'm sort of fairly. I'm fairly calm about these things. How these things in life happen, and you just get up, brush it down, and sort of start again. Yeah. Right. Well done. Um, let's go back to. Let's start the Le Mans thread. Yeah. You. Uh, you, you built these Ferraris, didn't you? Eleven. I thought it was ten, but you yeah, said eleven. Yeah, it was. One of our customers, a rally customer of ours, came to us one day. This was end of 2000, 2001? Yeah, about then, yeah. Freddie Dorr. And he said, uh, I'd, like to drive, um, I'd like to drive a sports car. Oh, no, he, he'd driven one. That's right. He, he'd rented a car from a, an Italian company running Ferrari 550s. And he came to us at the end of the year and said, could you make this go a bit better? It wasn't very reliable. And he said it wasn't very good. Could we have a go at it? And we took a look at it and said, well, we'd rather start again. Um, will, you, will you like to finance us to build a car? And so we went down and bought the cheapest 550 second-hand one we could find on the market in London. We bought it back, stripped it, and we built a race car out of it. And, uh, and we went to Le Mans with it the following year. Did Colin have a go in that? He did. He had a go the second year. He was very competent, as you would expect. Yeah. And, and that, that intro from the <coughs> Ferrari side led on to us thinking, well... I'd already gone every year. I used to go and knock on Aston Martin. I've, I loved Aston since I was a little boy. And so, so I used to go and knock on Aston Martin's door and said, how about having a race team? And they said, 
no chance. We've got no money and no, no way forward. M motor company will let us do it. So I still went every year, knocked on the door. And uh, finally, when the DB9 came along, I said, now's our chance. Let's this is about 03. It would be 03, yeah. Let's go and do this. Let's, uh, let's go and do a team. And they said, well, we've still got no money and Ford have got no limits to have this. I said, tell you what we'll do. I will finance the thing myself if uh, you will give me the rights to your motor racing for the next 10 years. And we didn't expect Ford to do this at all. We just thought this was a bit of a punt. And they, Ford agreed to it. And we had a two-page contract from Ford Motor It's the simplest contract I've ever seen in my gosh. life. Yeah. Normally they're 60, aren't they? Uh, but it's a very simple contract. It's a, you have all the rights to motor racing and, uh, and you have to do X, Y, and Z. My memory of that period is that Ulrich Betts had a lot to do with the, the, the refounding of the company. Yeah, he was doing a great job building the company back up and he paved his way through Aston Martin, the Ford hierarchy, and you know, he... He seemed to tell them what to do, didn't he? he oh, he was, a, he was quite a character. He would, I think very few people would have achieved that within a, the Ford organisation, but he just, he just carried on and defied everything. And, and I think the early days of, of the revival of Aston Martin were down to him. Yeah, he, uh, yeah, he achieved a lot, didn't he? Mm. But you, my memory or my impression is that there were times when you had to kind of paddle your own canoe because he became a bit involved, um, yeah, well, perhaps he, more than yeah, you would well, want. You know, that's, that's, you know, I told life. you about corporates and motor racing before, that's how it is, and you just have to accept yeah, it. Yeah, and that you think that was an example of the same thing? Very similar. Th they waited for you <coughs> to... First two years, they stood well out of it, waited to see what happened. Yeah. Oh, look, we're first at Le Mans. Yeah. Let's get involved. <laughs> yeah, you, uh, y y your, first, your first win was when? Was well, the first race we ran, Sebring. Oh, of course. We won right. at Sebring yeah. straight away with a new car. Yeah. But it was 2007 before we actually won the GT category at Le Mans. And then you, you, you won again after that, didn't you? Um, eight, I think. Yeah, we won a few times then after that. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, now that, the, the following that you get from Aston Martin when you go to Le Mans, and when you go anywhere in the world with the Aston Martin, flying the Aston Martin colours, it's just extraordinary. It's yeah. just extraordinary. It's, it makes you really feel great to be British as well. Yeah, well, you've, you, you have some Aston Martins, am I right? Well, one or two, and I've, I've sold one or two as well, but it's, uh, it's uh, no, I, I look back at some of the ones I've sold, I'm quite disappointed. <laughs> that car, there's a, there's a picture that we'll come to of, of you and Karen sitting in an open car at the Mila Melia. Is that an Aston? Uh, or is it a well, we did, we've done it once in an Aston Martin. If I'm in the driver's seat, it's an Aston Martin. If right. I'm in the passenger's seat, it's a Fraser National Le Mans rep. Okay. <laughs> it's a, I think this is an Aston. Okay. Um, just some, some more general questions. Yeah. Uh, your experience is, is so enormous that, that you know, we're, we're all interested in your impressions of things. The state of particular uh, codes of motor, motorsport, given that you've had a go at everything with a world championship attached to it. What do you think, it's a very open question, what do you think of rallying? You've, you owned rallying for a while. Yeah, I forgot that bit, yes. Is it doing well? Is it, you know, what, what's the recipe? What should they do to make it, make it work? I think that the, um, and just think about it yourself, um, about the categories of motorsport that inspire you or you've liked and the eras that you've followed. Firstly, there are personalities, right? And that will never get away from that. There's the sort of nationality of the, the drivers and the people you follow. But equally as important, the center of the action is the, 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 the way the cars 
inspire people and excite people and enthuse people. You've got to have passion about the cars. Now, what's happened in rallying, the cars have become very... Um, you don't get involved, you don't get excited about a, a Volkswagen Polo, do you? No, would you, not me. Really? really? <laughs> you, whereas those Subarus that spat fire out the back and popped and banged and, and the Lancia Stratuses of the old days and, and all those great cars, those were the things that really got people involved and passionate. Touring car racing was the same as well. And the reason why I believe sports car racing at the moment is so exciting is because the cars are great. They look great, they're exciting cars, and people aspire to them. So I think you've got to get that bit right. And if you dumb that bit down, then you lose your audience very quickly. So what cars exist now that you would rather see rallying? Are we talking a well, size bigger where they get... Well, I think the problem you've got with rallying is... And I think it's always easy to forget, you know, where we were with rallying. When I bought the championship, which was about 2003, I think. Two, no, maybe 2000, around that time. And um, Max Mosley was almost going to kill it off, I thought, because the safety record was poor and he was getting very nervous from an FIA point of view. He didn't really have a great passion for rallying anyway, unlike Jean Tot today. And um, I think it was, it was quite possible that it would have been killed very easily. And so we had to change the rules very quickly. We, had to, um, we made the rallies shorter so you could control them a lot better, so you had better marshalling. Uh, you dumbed down the cars, the performance of the cars came down. And a whole raft of issues came in, and it lost a lot of its character at that time as a result of that. And, but today, those things don't necessarily apply, so perhaps we've got to go back and relook at those things again. Mm. There's, a, there's been just a, a, quite a lot of legislation come along, hasn't there, the health and safety stuff. But the thing that I notice is that there are various people now saying that, that the, the cars of today, although not as powerful, are as quick as the Group B cars of of the old days. Do you think it's just that they're more controllable today so they don't go yeah, off the road quite so Technology sometimes, you know, you've got to decide whether you're having a technology race, in which case it's a, a bit of a free-for-all, and, and the consequence of that is you might not have very exciting or spectacular motorsport, or you're going to have a spectator event, in which case you take away a lot of the technology, as they've done in Formula One with traction control and things like that, yeah. and, and that makes for better spectacle. But I do think Formula One's going wrong in a little way now for next year, moving it back into the aerodynamic era again, where the, the, the aerodynamics are going to be so dominant next year, it's going to just, I, I suspect it's going to look a bit sort of processional again. Yeah. Why do you reckon they'd make a decision like that? Because it, see, it, it seems, I'll bet you that most of our uh, colleagues here would, would, would feel the same. What we need is cars to move around. Yeah, you, want, you want mechanical grip and you want sort of... If you did that and you reduced the aero, you'd actually close the gap because the teams with... Uh, the, the biggest differential in most of the teams is their, uh, their, their ability to develop aero on the yeah. cars. And so you'd have the lower teams more competitive. And uh, I think the real problem there is that uh, there's a very big influence of the aerodynamicists within the team, and there's big investment in, in CFD and wind tunnels as well. But why do you reckon that all these eminent, rather clever people have made a decision that, that's counterintuitive? Ah, because the, the people making the decision, it's, it's turkeys voting for Christmas. You know, it's the, 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 the aerodynamicists in the race teams want to see aerodynamics as a dominant force, and, and they, they like that. Uh, they're sort of minutiae of the detail in those fancy front wings, but yeah. I don't really care More about that. More surface area for advertising, maybe. Uh, well, that would be very different as well. You could very easily legislate to have plenty of surface for advertising, 
without going into the fancy wings and aerodynamic uh, details. Is there a part of you that wishes you were in there slugging it out? Occasionally I look at that and I think, but I've uh, I had my fair shot at it and, you know, all right, got second in the championship, didn't quite do it, but uh, you know, sometimes you have to realise that, you know, when you've, your time's come and you do something else. Yeah, I see. Um, you've been very successful <coughs> at sports car racing, but there's one car that I think you were involved with which we didn't hear much of. Do you remember there was an Aston LMP1 car? Yeah. Was that, did, were, you concerned, were you involved with that? Oh, very much so, yes. What happened? Um, too little time, too little money. Um, it was very radical, wasn't it? Didn't it, it, was, it was radical, but we just didn't have enough resource and enough time to do the job properly. We made a big, big error. Yeah. And, um, you know, we but it, was, was that, it wasn't your design, was it, or was it? It was internal design. It was done at ProDrive, yeah. yeah. Uh, the engine was our own design. The whole chassis was our own design. And it was just, um, we bit off more than we could chew. Would you like to have another sometimes, go at LMP1? Sometimes you hold your hand up. You? <laughs> well, the fact that Audi's pulled out as of this week of LMP, we're now left with only two manufacturers there. Um, that's the, um, in fact, I wrote to the ACO yesterday about it because um, we're now left with just Porsche and Toyota in the, with the prototypes. And um, to my mind, they give an inordinate amount of publicity and attention to that category, whereas in GT racing, we have the most fantastic races. We're sort of, you know, we'll go the full sort of 24 hours and we'll be a minute apart at the end. And, you know, the last race since in, uh, in the WEC, we've been finished six hour races, six, <coughs> 10 seconds apart. So I think that there'll be a sort of, um, the silver lining to this will be for the GT manufacturers where I think they'll have to swing the attention to there now. And, and I've been pushing very hard for a world championship title to go to the GTs from, hopefully from next year. Two things about that. One is, um, I can remember when there were lots of manufacturers in Formula One, and I remember Ross Braun saying in an interview one time, saying to me, this isn't going to obtain for too long because people are not going to want to pay all this <coughs> money to come seventh. Correct. So you wonder about that as, a, as, as, as for the future of Well, I think if you, look at, if you look at most categories in motorsport, you'll see that the average number of manufacturers always ends up at about three and a half, somewhere around that number. It's between three and four at the end of the day. If you go, if you look at any category, you go touring car racing, you go GT, you go any, anywhere in the world, World Rally Championship, it ends up around the number of four. And it'll go up a bit more, five, six, and then two will drop out. It'll go back down to three or something. And it always just hovers around three to four. That's interesting. Um, For the uh, reason you've highlighted. Yeah, I see. But Aston Martin are quite firm, and you, your deal well, with them is... Yeah, we're nice we, and tight. Well, the great thing about Aston Martin, we are racing the cars that they sell in the showrooms. And the, 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 the Vantage chassis, it's the same basic chassis that we, the, the Vantage people can buy as a V8 or a V12. The engine in the GT3 car is based on the V8 in the, uh, in the um, sorry, in the GT3 car is based on the V12 and then the GT car is based on the V8. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's very relevant. And so people can relate to it, the dealers can relate to it, the customers can relate to it. It's not something uh, abstract like Formula One or a, or a prototype for that matter. Give me a, the other thing that confuses me, uh, you invited me to the, to the first uh, race of the series, the yep. Silverstone. And I, I think I tried to engage you in conversation briefly about this balance of performance yep. business. And I didn't get much of an answer out of you because 
I see it as, as, a, as a sort of license to sandbag, but, you, but everybody's very polite and gentlemanly about it. The, as, as I understand it, if, if a team does too well, the, the umpire comes along and says, here's, a, here's some ballast or we're going to reduce the size of your yeah. carburetor choke or whatever the heck. Yeah. Well, the principle is the following. If you want to have great racing from a front-wheel drive Aston Martin, front-engine Aston Martin, a rear-engine Porsche or a mid-engine Ferrari, you've got to do something about it because, you know, inevitably the, you know, the mid-engine car is always the best layout and it's always going to win. Especially when we've got a five-litre engine and the, the Ferrari's got a turbocharged engine and the, and the, and the Porsche's uh, also got a, well, it's got a normally aspirated engine now, but it will have turbo. And so the Ford is a race car. And the Ford's a full out-and-out -out race car. Yeah. So you have to do something. So what they've said is, right, we're going to do, alter three different things. We'll alter the aerodynamics, and we'll allow you to do certain things on that, and we'll allow to adjust them. We'll change the weight of your car, and we'll put a restrictor on the engine. And it'll be a combination of those things that not always be the same. So might, and, um, and they try and balance the performance so you can get great racing. Um, I'm... I'm a great, I, I have been a great advocate for this for a number of years because I don't think we'd have been in motor racing if it wasn't for that solution because we couldn't have been competitive. So it has been a way of encouraging Aston Martin to, we've won this year, we've won uh, the British Championship, we've won the European Championship last weekend and we're fighting with Ferrari for the World Championship at the moment. So it's encouraged us to be there. Whether it's sustainable in the long term, I'm just sort of questioning now. And whether we've got to go to a more open formula, and with Adrian Newey designing a mid-engine car for us at the moment, maybe there's an opportunity for us to actually throw the rules out and start again, and we could all have GT racing to an open formula as it was in the past. Oh, interesting. As as the bloke on the sofa, I must say I I can't see why, if you all start off fairly equal, why the guy that does it best can't win and that it, at the moment it seems to me that, that he's prevented from doing that at times it's not quite that simple it's you know there's a bit of politics involved in it but um i think overall the fia and the aco are doing a good job actually they've got the balance not far you know we've complained louder than anybody when they get it wrong against us but but i honestly think if i look back and i look at the current situation they're not far away but the the, the interesting thing however i think the bit that they've got wrong now is tyres are a bigger influence than anything else. And tyres are not uh, brought into the whole balance performance. And that has screwed everything for everybody because we come forward to the development of a Dunlop tyre, which we're on, everyone else is on Michelins, and suddenly they've got to do something. And it, it's just made it very difficult. So I think they might have to in the, bring in a control tyre. We are going to take some questions from okay. the audience in a minute, but there are just a couple of... Very simple, you could even say cheesy questions yeah, that I would on, like to on. ask you. Um, the one that, that always lingers is, of the cars that you've caused to be created, shall we say, yep. which is the one you're proudest of? Um, I think uh, I, hard to say. It's like, you know, which is your favourite child? You know, yeah, it's, sure. um, uh, and I wouldn't uh, wish to differentiate between any of them, but, but I have to say... See, the Subaru World Rally car was a wonderful car, and, and that's got iconic memories for me. But then, so is the latest Aston Martins that we raced at Le Mans. Yeah. But then you, we could ask you to differentiate between V12s and V8s, couldn't we? Could be, yeah. But, but 
probably the, the car we're going to do next is going to be the best one. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that, that's a very Enzo Ferrari thing to say. <laughs> um, uh, you've already answered who was best, Colin or Richard. I think we know that now. But no, no, don't get me wrong. They both won world championships, and that was the measure. Um, so they did it, doing it in a different way, that's all. And that's uh, 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 all credit to both of them. Yeah. Um, you have some cars, some road cars, mm. and you, you're different from many people involved in motorsport, particularly at the top echelons, in that you do love cars, I mm. believe. Tell me some cars you particularly love that you've owned or you uh, own now. Well, many of them I regret selling, unfortunately. There comes a time when these things go away and you look back, why did I ever sell that? It's normally my wife persuaded me at the time to sell it. She wanted to do something else. So... I've had a, a, an Aston Martin DB3S, which I loved. That was a great car. And uh, I, I used to drive it to work every day. I just, you know, we used to take it to the racetrack, but I used to drive it to work as well. I loved that car. I've got a, an Aston Martin DB6 Volante I use all the time now for the summers. And just, that's a, a sort of daily travel in the and summer. And that's okay on the modern roads? And oh, stuff. it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. And we just use it all the time in the summer. I just never has the roof put up, and so just drive everywhere. So, and... Um, and I've got, would you believe, um, my very first car I bought when I was 16, and I put it in the garage at home. I bought it from a farmer he had in a barn, and it was a frog eye sprite. And um, I painted this myself. And uh, at 16... With a brush? No, at 16, you, I actually spray painted it. You can imagine at 16 the colour you choose. And um, <laughs> it was a Bahama yellow. It was a Porsche colour of the time. Anyway, we got to our 25th wedding anniversary. I couldn't think of a present to buy my wife. I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll get one of those frog eye sprites. I'll get a brand new one done up it properly. I'll paint it that lovely color again. And um, so I brought it home the day of our wedding anniversary. And my wife said, if you think I'm getting in that car again, you've got to be joking. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but we have that down in Cornwall, and we still use it during the summer now. The kids use it more than we do. Oh, right, OK. Um, Last question, but, but most obvious. I mean, you've done so much, you know so many people, your achievements reach from here to the equator. What ambitions do you still have? Um, I'm sure there are lots of things I've still got to achieve and I want to achieve. Um, I think the day when I don't get up early in the morning and think about the excitement of another day ahead and what's going to happen next and what our next challenge is going to be at work. The interesting thing now at work um, is some of the new projects we're working on. What we've done is I've changed the whole structure of the company in the last 12 months now to, um, uh, to focus on <coughs> new technologies. And so we've got a group of people, a large group now, more than, well, it currently runs at sort of 60% of the business now, is, is looking at a whole range of new things. And um, working uh, with, we're launching, I left the office this morning briefly to, they were doing the, the first of a lightweight folding bicycle, which we're launching now. It's the lightest weight folding bike in the world. It'll be six and a half kilos. Wow. So it'll be a great commuter bike for people. Uh, we're working, we're doing other work for the National Health Service on projects that we're, uh, we've been doing for them to help just technology we think can help. You do a McLaren P1 piece, don't you? That we did all, the body, we did all the body work for the McLaren. Yeah. Uh, the active aero we did for them as well. Um, we're doing, uh, what else are we doing? Working with Rolls-Royce on aero engines. Um, we're doing uh, electric vehicles, a lot of electric vehicle work at the moment for different people. And um, 
I've just uh, I've met some interesting people um, um, from down in Cornwall who um, Tim Smith who set up the um, Eden Project. Oh yes, yeah. And I'm just become I've I guess I've burnt my fair share of fossil fuels during my lifetime. So I've become a, not I wouldn't say that. Uh, a zealot about these things, but I've become very open to how we can do things for the future and how we can use technology to do great things for the future. Mm. And all the expertise that we've developed in our race teams and the talent we've developed there, I'm opening up the idea to them that we can use that in different ways to, to try on new challenges that uh, um, might appear. I th still think motor racing can be made relevant, and when it is relevant, it's very positive. But ideas that we can make for for the future and help. I guess it's about efficiency, isn't it? Even if it's it's speeding. a whole range of ideas from taking yeah. weight out of vehicles, looking at new ideas of how things can work differently, looking at the electric vehicles. You know, mm. don't keep our mind open to all these ideas. Last thing, I forgot to mention this. You are involved with the with the uh, uh, twelve meter. Um, yeah, well, well, Ben's a, uh, that's an interesting story as well because I was, um, when we moved, we, we have a house down on the coast in Cornwall and I decided I wanted to learn to sail about 10 years ago, I suppose. And I knew nothing about sailing whatsoever. And I met a guy um, at Geneva Motor Show, Neville Crichton, who's done some big sailing events, really great sailor, he's won the Hobart, he's won the, the uh, Fastnet, everything. And I said to him, Ben, I, I said, Neville, I, I need, I really am hopeless this sailing. I just, I've got this great wooden boat. It's a lovely old boat, but I just don't know how to do it probably. I'll tell you what we do. He said, I've got a good guy who works for me. He, he sails for me quite regularly. He helms for me. I'll get him on the phone now. We'll get him to see if he can give you some lessons. So he picks up the phone and says, now, Ben, I've got... <laughs> <laughs> and um, so that's how I got to know Ben. And... Um, uh, was I'm he any still, uses in I'm still a bad sailor, but um, we, uh, after his last America's Cup win, we said, look, there are lots of things that we could help you with in the motor racing world of how you operate. It's not necessarily some of, it's actually the ergonomics of a lot of things and the way you think about doing tasks on the boat. So I think we've, we've played a quite a significant part, I hope, and uh, I feel very, I went out on the boat with Ben the other day. I, he took me out on the Solent. Is it amazing? 40 knots downwind, 30, 30 knots upwind, nearly three times the speed of wind. And um, up on the stilts at two metres above the water, creaking and groaning the carbon fibre. And, um, but I think they've got a great team together. And Martin Whitmarsh there, ex-McLaren. And, you know, my money's on them to win. A, Is it scary or stable? Oh, no, it wasn't scary at all. It's great. And uh, I, think, um, I, I think my money's on them to do well in Bermuda next May. Gotcha. Let's take some questions. Good <coughs> Richards. <laughs> Okay, now I'm sure there's some questions you'd love to ask David about this extraordinary career that he's had. My glamorous assistant here with the red trousers will go about you with <coughs> one radio mic. Jenny's got another one over there. So, first of all, any questions from the floor? Don't all rush. One over in the corner there, Jenny. Yeah, thank you. I don't think the mic's on, Johnny. Give it a shake or something. Maybe a switch. <coughs> that sounds Is that better. better. That's better. You, you talked about lots of different race categories. Um, what are your views on Formula E? Um, 
I think Formula E is, I, well, you, uh, that's the reason Audi have given for pulling out of the uh, Le Mans series, that they're going to concentrate their efforts on Formula E. Um, it's, uh, it's early days yet, and I think Formula E is slightly confused with its, its positioning. Is it a technology race to develop new technologies, in which case they've got to free up the regulations and then you'll see some really great things happening there? Or is it entertainment? And that's why they've put so many restrictions in place. And I don't think it's entertainment, and I don't think it's a technology race at the moment. I think that's, they've got to decide where they want to go to with it in the future. And uh, um, my view would be that they've just somehow got to release the regulations and let people get on with it. And then we'll see some, uh, some really interesting developments from that. But Audi's expertise should propel it pretty... They should I be think, pretty good at it. I think, they're, you know, I think the problem is you'll see an extraordinary escalation of costs now, and you'll see some of the bottom teams fall away very quickly. Any more questions? Uh, Tim, just behind you. <coughs> it's behind you. <laughs> and then Tony behind there, OK? Have you many females working for your business? And how do you find working with them? <laughs> <laughs> Is that a leading question, I wonder? It's, um, we've, uh, we actively try to recruit uh, female engineers, and we've... Um, We've got a few, um, not as many as we'd like, and, um, but we're, um, it, it's a factor of the education system, I think, who comes through the education system. I went last weekend, or the weekend before, I can't remember, to the um, Green Power Finals, where they run the student electric vehicles up at Rockingham, and I met lots of kids there, and the team that won it was a girls' school, and I talked to all the girls there, and they were sort of doing sciences, and, uh, and you know, hopefully by encouraging them in those areas, we can get some more female participation. Not necessarily maybe in the driving side, but certainly on the engineering on the back, uh, background. Tony. David, you uh, were talking there about some of the new technologies that uh, ProDrive are getting involved in. How do you see this sort of uh, progress that's being made in battery technology affecting some of the projects maybe that you're involved in? Uh, which technology? The, the battery technology, battery, ele electric. Yeah. Yeah, well, again. Battery technology is moving on very quickly, and I think that might be in the enabler for a, for a whole range of things. And that's what sort of changes so many things, the way that new technologies, the composites that we're working in at the moment for road cars as well as race cars. And, um, but battery technology, I think we're just waiting for that breakthrough at the moment. Formula E next year, I think it's or 2018, will go to uh, one battery for the whole race. They've got these two-car system at the moment, which... I just never understood and thought it was rather foolish, but um, they, they're going through a single battery then from that period. And I think it's, it's advancing very quickly, and you see it in road cars, and, and I think that's the, what everything's waiting for, for making electric cars quite viable. Uh, another question, maybe? Anyone? Yeah. Cliff. Brilliant, brilliant talk. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm not sure if you'll be able to tell us the answer to the question. What sort of brake horsepower are the Aston Martins putting out now for the race cars? The race cars? Well, they're pegged, you know, with the restrictor. So roughly 500 horsepower, maybe, uh, you know, it varies depending on the restrictor that we have at the time from the ACO. I guess between 500 and 550, depending on the, the situation there. The engine's capable of um, about 580 on the Le Mans car, and the GT3 car is actually, with a V12, is capable of more. Okay. Thank you. Uh, one more question down here. Yes, sir. Hi, David. Um, 
you've achieved so much in, in, um, in endurance racing, rallying, touring cars, Formula One. Uh, but in 1920s, Aston Martin broke many world records here at Brooklands. What do you think? Well, if they'd just finished the banking, then we'd have another <laughs> go. <laughs> world records. World records. I think world records, um, I think they have their place, but um, we did a world record with a Volvo at Myra, uh, no, at Millbrook. We did a 24-hour record with that. And um, I, I don't know that the public uh, relate to world records as they did do. I think there will be interesting world records for electric vehicles, but I think it's a, it's a measure of uh, a technology that's come, uh, it's mature technology, and I think world records in, I think speed records today, do people really pay attention to that? And a land speed record, I'm not so sure the relevance of that in, in this day and age. So I, I question... Uh, the direction of most things. Thank you. Okay. Any more questions, ladies and gentlemen? Okay. Just one thing before we close, David. <coughs> We'd like you to accept this. Each year we produce a uh, reunion badge. Um, they're different every year. That's this year's. And Thank they're you. based on historical designs that you'll see on display downstairs. So Thank you very treasure much. that. Okay. Oh, well. Thank, Thank you. Item, right? Thank you very much. <laughs>